Welcome to the Sports Business Commute here on the program. I'm Michael Minkus, joined as always by Daniel McIntosh and Christopher Lee from the W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State University. You're still waving at the camera, <laughs> Professor Lee. Is this is on? a podcast. My, uh, is it not on? It's your thing. It's like my thing. My you wave every time. Yeah. This is a podcast. You know that, right? <laughs> it's fun, It's audio. Though. It's fun. Puts a smile on your face. Yeah. We, I, it's for funsies. Uh-huh. Fun. Ugh. I hate fun. Great band, though. The, the band Fun? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's <laughs> like funsies. I'm like, I've, I've never heard of the funsies. <laughs> is this like some... Fun is a great band, though. Thank you. They're solid. Yeah. They're, they're, it's, they're... I think it's technically fun, period. I think the period is part of their name. We're off to a great start. <laughs> Thought of the day. Thought of the... Situation. Uh, we're not doing any more linguistics. We killed that, finally. It took us long enough. But uh, you're, don't shake it's your head. head. That was terrible. <laughs> It was terrible. Uh, our opening thought of the day, I want to ask you to what your favorite technological innovation that has changed the live sports experience is. So, you know, in, in past episodes, we've talked about how AR has changed the at-home viewing experience. But what has been one technological experience that has changed the live venue experience for the better? Professor McIntosh, as always, chomping at the bit. Go ahead. Uh, in-game instant replay. Ooh. Oh, that's a big one. That's huge. Yeah, and that's, I mean, relatively new. It wasn't that long ago where they wouldn't show it because they were worried about fans <clears> getting <throat> mad at the umpire, et cetera. Yeah, but that's, God, can you imagine being a referee and then 19,000 fans see you completely botched it? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, too, because you're watching, you're like, oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, then it feels like the manager gets upset, runs out there and complains because they can see it on the replay. The whole thing is. Did you guys happen to watch the ASU Washington State Baseball Series? Uh, uh, no, I did not. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so ASU is clinging to, like, a 6-5 lead. Washington State has a runner on second, loops a liner into first, or into the outfield. And so the home plate umpire runs to cover third base because the third base umpires run out to the outfield to see if it's going to get caught. So the home plate umpire thinks there's going to be play at third base, gets into the path of the runner, (laughs) knocking him over, Preventing the run from scoring. Oh, man. I have never seen a manager get hotter <laughs> than that. And the the umpire just had to take it. He was like... Oh, That's on yeah. me. He <laughs> was. And it was like, I was like, are you going to run, run this guy out of the game? He didn't because he was like, yeah, I legit threw a pick on your runner. I'd never seen that before. So what do they... Like, what do they do? Nothing. The... Fortunately, next batter up looped a, a, looped a, a liner to dra- bring the run home, so it didn't really okay. affect the outcome. Sure. But holy moly, was that a huge mistake. I mean, I, I can't imagine being like a, a fan watching that just in le- in real time. Yeah. You're just like, what? How? And the manager was just heated, right? 100% justifiably so. You could probably hear it from the stands, right? Sir. Wow. Professor Lee, your favorite technological innovation that has changed the live sports viewing experience. In what period of time are we talking here? Your lifetime. First thing that came to mind was the scoreboard, but that's... <laughs> How about, like, statistics and information on the scoreboard? Oh, like the advent of, like, WOBA and all these other things, OPS and, and that type of stuff? Yeah, or just putting, like, the batting average and What was the tweet things. you had the other day? Oh, yeah, so... <laughs> the Angels, for spring training, play at Tempe Diablo Stadium, and for some reason... The scoreboard always shows career statistics. So Mike Trout gets up there, and it's his career statistics, like whatever, 6,000 plate appearances and 150 <laughs> like, steals and 34 caught stealing. That, that's the best part of it all. Like, you know, if you say, like, his lifetime home run total, cool. His lifetime hits, if they're approaching 3,000, great. He's been caught stealing 34 times in his career. They weren't like, even helpful. Like, of, of, all the, of all the statistics I could possibly want to know about Mike Trout, like, right. none of them were on the actual right. board. Wow. Wow. 
Honestly, I, I have to go with for my answer. I was actually going to say in arena instant replay as well. It, it, yeah, bask in the uh, bask in the praise. I guess oh, no, that one. He that's like the he stole it. That's why I went he stole first. the best one. <laughs> that, that's, that's the thing. It's, that, that's the thing, though. I mean, it completely changed the way that fans can view games, especially like you know, in between whistles, right? What what were teams doing in between whistles before like in arena instant replay? Dun 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 dun. dun, dun, dun. Think about the, the turnaround time, though, that we, like, demand of instant replay. Like, that's oh, not an easy thing to do, right? We, like, instantaneously want to know what happened, One of my crazy. Uh, favorite uh, additions of the AAF was that they broadcast the dialogue between the referee and the replay booth. Oh. And, and one of the best things was, like, they're just as confused as we are. <laughs> so the guy was like, okay, it looks like we got a catch. Yeah, yeah, we got a catch. Okay, I'm going to be ruling a catch. Then it's a new angle, and he goes, oh, Oh, uh-oh. Uh, 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 no, this is not a catch. We're going to overturn. I was like, what just happened? Sure. Like, he's at home making it up as we go. Uh, th- that's the question. Is that what it's like in the NFL as well? I 100% think it is. Oh, I want to do a study on that now based on like what you call in the field and then whether you see the confirming evidence first or the other Ooh. view that... In the likelihood to overturn? Yeah. Oh, man, we are, we are building up your stack of pubs. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Or at least pub ideas. We haven't <laughs> put in much pen to paper yeah, say, yet. Give, give it 10 years, you'll be getting, you know, fielded calls from, like, top research firms. Sure. Yeah, wow. yeah, there you go, man. Fantastic. That'd make a difference. You would. You would hope. Yeah. The order in which you see the... Oh, I thought you said... I, th- I thought you meant, like, getting called by a massive marketing firm would make a difference no, for I'm, you personally. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I would hope. <laughs> I'm saying in Daniel's example, if the referee first sees the shot that confirms what he thought versus sees the shot that goes against what he thought. The order of those... All right, so uh, the very extended thought of the day there. Leading into another technological, I won't call it an innovation, but a technological factor playing into a lot of live sporting events these days, and that is venues going cashless. You're already seeing this in some markets. I believe the Tampa Bay Rays are utilizing this at Tropicana Field this season. Um Oh, Professor McTash. Well, and you're also starting to see pushback. The city of Philadelphia yeah. just passed a law that's saying going cashless is illegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they had some issues with the socioeconomic status. So we're seeing uh, kind of very divergent opinions on this topic. So talk. I, I, that's kind of actually where I was going to go with this is I kind of want to talk about some of the pros and cons of going cashless. Now, proponents of cashless venues say that they improve – more or less that they improve the experience for people well, at the ticket office. Efficiency. You know, they make it quicker. You know, you don't have to worry about fumbling around for cash at the concession stand if you're buying popcorn. And the um, change and you know, whatever else you How many back. of us have stood behind while someone like pulls out each penny that they're trying? <laughs> I got it. And you're like, come on. Uh, the worst is when they write a check. <laughs> I haven't seen that I, in I, an arena. It, 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 not not <laughs> I saw it once. <laughs> I, I was just I was just shocked. I, I I don't know I don't understand how that's possible. No, just in general, the worst is when people are writing a check and you're standing behind them like it's always like you know some grandma. Oh, don't worry, Sonny, I'm almost done here. And it's like you know she's writing a check for like five forty two. It's like oh my god. But I mean, it goes to this idea of like changing habits are tough to break. And at what point you don't know, do the leagues? push certain things or the individual teams, then there's the backlash from cities and other kind of uh, political efforts. So that's actually the main focus that I kind of wanted to talk about here is that this push to go cashless in many ways, when we talk about in law, you know, I, and I'm going to cite uh, Professor Caleb Jay. He's the uh, general counsel for the Arizona Diamondbacks, also teaches a class in the sports law and business program at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Uh, 
essentially you have two different kinds of discrimination that can occur as a result of particular like employment practices, you know, disparate treatment and disparate impact. Now, disparate treatment would be essentially saying that people below a certain income level can't come to a game, right? Clearly illegal. You clearly can't do that. But disparate impact is arguably insidious as opposed to saying, oh, well, people below a certain income level can't come to this game. You say, oh, well, we're going cashless, ignoring the fact that the majority of people who use cash for all, all or almost all of their transactions are almost exclusively lower income. Right. And so we're talking about may not have a bank account or sure. may not have a credit history or, or whatever it might be. Uh, and so the, the initial solution I saw to this was the concept of the reverse ATM, right? And so how's an ATM work? You put in your card, you get out cash. So what's the reverse ATM? You put in cash, you get a card. And, and so they said that solves this problem. You can still use cash, but there's so many negative uh, outcomes to that, right? Think about the card can only be used in the arena. And so I right. put $10 on it, I spend seven forty-six, and now what the heck do I do with the other, the, the remaining balance sure. on that card, right? So that's a really bad experience mm-hmm. for the fan. Not to mention that a reverse ATM would cause a lot of the problems that people, that proponents of cashless venues say they're preventing. Talk about the lines in front of reverse ATMs. You want to talk about having to spend 20, 25 minutes outside the stadium getting your little reverse ATM card before you even ticket scan and go to your seat. Sure. It just It's a very inefficient process to me, it seems. Well, especially, right, we've all had that time where you're in the vending machine and you're trying to put in the dollar <laughs> bill and what to do. <laughs> all right. right. So it's not a, a great experience. And, and then there's some, you know, other kind of bolder kind of concepts. And they said, like, imagine you're a 12-year-old. And 12-year-olds go to baseball games, sure. and, and you're like, all right, have your 12-year-old have a credit card. No, that's a terrible idea. And we can End go up with it. some pretty nice gear from the, uh, <laughs> the team store. Exactly, right? <laughs> like, if you give a 12-year-old $5 and tell him to run off and go whatever he wants, worst-case scenario, he spends the $5. Mm-hmm. But you give him a credit card, <laughs> and you come back, and you're like, what did we just buy? That's a brand-new jersey, and sure. somehow I'm, I'm enrolled in a 50-50 raffle, and, like... The downside, the consequences of that are, are not great. Or or you give the kid the cash and you tell him, hey, you have to walk across the concourse to go change this money and then come back and now I'll serve you. Again, from a fan experience point of view, potentially really negative consequences for some of these, for some of these groups. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're seemingly transferring the or trying to make the concession part more efficient, but then you've got this other area you know, where you have to this reverse ATM. And it's not a minor issue. I mean, I'm looking at some statistics here. Roughly 6% of residents in Philadelphia were underbanked, or unbanked, um, excuse me. So that's 6% of the population in Philadelphia essentially doesn't have banking that's not good. Um, access. So credit cards, debit cards, et cetera. Uh, 22% were considered underbanked. So that might mean, again, access to debit cards, credit cards. I mean, that's an enormous yeah. portion of the population uh, for a sport or industry in general that... Um, Brands itself as sort of access to a variety of well, different Well, we can, you know, real briefly, I can, we can kind of explain why. You're like, well, why don't they have bank accounts? Well, for Bank of America, if you don't have $5,000 in the account, mm-hmm. they charge you a $15 monthly fee. Sure. And imagine, if you were on a, a low income, $15 is basically your Netflix, sure. right? right? Like, you're getting charged just to hold money. Mm-hmm. It's on the order of 3 or 5% sure. To hold money in the bank, that's a very expensive uh, fee for for these types of individuals. Mm -hmm. And not to mention that a lot of banks also have requirements to even start an account. You have to have a certain amount of money. Now, I was was lucky that, you know, my my dad was an employee of Anheuser-Busch for many years, so we were able to use the Anheuser-Busch Employees Credit Union. Which very different rules at a credit union than, say, you know, like a national bank brand. Wait, so was it ABCU? ABECU. Oh. 
Abaku. <laughs> yeah, but it, essentially, you know, like you mentioned, Bank of America. Uh, I think uh, Wells Fargo also has account minimums mm-hmm. for any of their savings or checking accounts. And that's just to start the account. That might be $50, which we say, oh, well, $50, that's not that much. Anybody can go with $50. You know, you tell somebody working a, a minimum wage job and all of their money sure. immediately goes to bills and food for their kids. Yeah. You tell them, by the way, you also need to have $50 on hand right now just so you can have this account. Yeah. And then once you have the account, we're going to charge you $15 a month for it unless you have $5,000 in there. Yeah. So it's it's no wonder that, you know, you mentioned. So I assume that unbank and underbank, underbanked, I should say, are those two like mutually exclusive groups. So essentially 28% of Philadelphia is un or underbanked. I think it's safe to say it's a significant portion of people in Philadelphia don't have credit cards, debit cards. Um, Possibly or, or up to 28%. Easily, yeah, right. Up to 20% easy access in New Jersey. Uh, so Philadelphia was kind of the the first to jump in here and say, you know, stores have to have a a cash option, and then New Jersey followed suit just in the last couple of days. Which again, you start to see, okay, now we've got sports teams in New Jersey that are now subject to these uh, possible regulations. Well, another thing that's kind of interesting, we talk about who benefits, and the teams get a lot of benefit out of this from the data that mm-hmm. they can track. Um, from the and from a consumer's perspective, it's a little bit of a privacy invasion. And I was thinking about this. I was like, you know, does anybody really care that uh, somebody knows that I bought Jujubees? Like, is that something that's potentially, you know, privacy infringing? But then I was reminded there was a really cool article. I think it was by some Ivy researchers uh, about a year ago where they were able to take Uber and Lyft data and they could, at a very high probability, estimate who was committing adultery. Like, think about that. Like, that's what you're giving up with some of these products. And so you could go through, you could, like, picture a thing and be like, honey, did you go to the baseball game last night? No, I didn't. Well, your credit card statement says you did. Like, you're leaving a a trail, and it could have some very adverse consequences. And Target, this is maybe, I don't know, five to ten years ago, but Target was essentially able to determine that somebody was pregnant based on their purchasing habits before the family even knew, essentially, that they were pregnant. Um, So, So, I mean, there's a lot of, like, once you start connecting the dots, you can paint some... Interesting, Interesting pictures, stories, right? Yeah. So this this privacy concern, at first I laughed it off because I was like, who cares that I bought a hot dog? Like, oh, somebody's going to be like, oh, he's a hot dog eater. But you, you start to think about how you can tie it to other data points. And it, it, from a privacy concern, I, I can see some real legitimate issues. On the flip side, you can see why the teams are interested. I mean, you can pinpoint an individual person in an individual seat, what they purchase throughout the game that, you know, are the people in the bleachers more likely to buy hot dogs and cotton candy than the people behind the plate mm-hmm. and how much more are they spending relative to their ticket price, uh, et cetera. So you can see why the teams are interested. But again, I mean, there's certainly privacy ethical concerns. Well, and I think that was my point, right? Like this seems to be this, this movement, this cashless movement seems to be driven by the teams, mm-hmm. not by the fans. And sure. I think that's an yeah. interesting yeah. difference in how some of these changes have happened over time. I think what's interesting to point out, you mentioned that New Jersey as an entire state has banned or at least has legislation in um, in writing that mm-hmm. bans cashless venues, cashless uh, stores, and et cetera. So I wonder how much of this has to do, and I'm tying this back into sports, I wonder how much of this has to do with sports gambling. I wonder how much of this has to do with casinos. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. Think about if, if Nevada, for example, were to ban uh, cashless, tra- uh, cashless venues. Um, obviously you would have people crying, well, part of this is because, uh, prostitution, for example, is legal in Nevada. Um, in almost all of Nevada, I should say it's illegal in Las Vegas. But, you know, when we talk about these things, yeah, nobody cares that I bought a hot dog, 
But somebody very well might care that I put $300 down on, you know, Duke to win the NCAA tournament, which I guess this episode's coming out uh, two weeks from uh, March 21st. We're recording this on March 20th. So, uh, hey, you know, future me, if Duke did win the NCAA tournament, uh, call me up. Time, you know, if time travels around in four weeks. But point is, we, we don't care about these kind of, oh, these basic, these, oh, these uh, innocent purchases. But yeah. as soon as a company and, or a sports team has information on all of your purchases. Well, well think <laughs> about this. Think about alcohol purchase, hmm? right? If, if you wanted to make the case that you weren't overserved or something along these lines, and they can go through and say, sir, we've got... 14 beer purchases, right? Like you, you're all of a sudden you have a, a paper trail that for a lot of people could be very, very concerning. And the concern I have personally, I'm sorry, I think I might've just interrupted. No, I was just going to say in terms of going back to, you know, who's pushing for this, the, the uh, Delaware North was looking at Boston's TD garden and uh, card transactions have gone from 47 and percent of total sales to 85.8% of total sales. So it's, it's shifting that way. Just sort of Naturally, I'm not sure we need the teams and, and those people to jump right in and say we need to go. Yeah, What's we're, the benefit? we're not saying that that a majority or even uh, a plurality of purchases made at a sporting venue are used with cash. Like I, I, I'm pretty anti cashless venue mm-hmm. for the reasons I've kind of outlined. I, th- sure. I think I think it restricts access to a certain socioeconomic class, mm-hmm. and I, I'm just not a big fan of that kind of restriction of access. But so now that you know my political leanings on this one. Um, from, you know, this basis, we're not saying that, like I said, we're not saying a majority or a plurality of the purchases made at TD Garden are cash, right? You mentioned like, what, 15% then mm-hmm. essentially are made with cash. But for those 15%, who is purchasing things, whatever it is, merchandise, concessions, who is included in that 15%? Because sure. I doubt that there are many, you know, millionaires, billionaires going to Bruins games and buying hot dogs at concession stands with, you know, the, the $5 bill they pulled out of their pocket. Right. Well, in full disclosure, I rarely carry cash. Like, I, I live sure. in the digital world, but I, I don't think I'm the the concerned party in right. this one, right? Uh, and so do I like it? Do I think it's easier? I, I do. I don't have to count change. I don't have to do anything. And, and I have an instant record if I want to go home and be like, man, how did I get a $400 credit bill? I can look and be sure. like, well, that's how. Um, so I, I just think there's some, some real troubling, you know, uh, to what you call it, disparate impact. In yeah, disparate could, impact. Could, could have some really interesting spillover effects that we haven't thought of. And the choice, right? I mean, right now you have a choice. If you want to yeah. use cash versus card in this kind of new world, you don't. And that's where it becomes Well, and, uh, and going further, even uh, these credit card transactions are more expensive. Right? If you look at something like a, uh, a yeah. checkbox, yeah. they are cash only. Mm-hmm. With the, the concept being it saves them 3%. Yeah. And so there's additional costs that we could think about that go there. And if we lose the ability to use cash, do we become at the mercy of some of these things and those prices go up? We should clarify what Chuck Box is for those of us oh, yeah. who aren't uh, Arizona natives. <laughs> Chuck Box, yes. Chuck Box is a burger joint uh, on or adjacent to ASU's campus. I don't know if they're officially on campus. We'll call it on campus. We'll call it on campus. But they are cash only because they're a very small a uh, very small joint, make good burgers, yeah. but don't do the kind of volume where 3% is negligible to them. Mm-hmm. You know, that 3% matters for a small venue like Chuckbox. Mm-hmm. And, that, that, and that kind of ties into, you know, how we're talking about impact and how we're talking about access at these sporting venues. On the complete opposite side of the spectrum, you have Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, which has been lauded, and I think rightly so, uh, by... I don't know. Access activists sounds like a weird way to phrase it. So perhaps activists for the underprivileged or underrepresented in the sports community, they've pointed to Mercedes-Benz Stadium as being an absolutely awesome venue 
for a variety of reasons. First and foremost, the venue was built in a relatively low-income area of Atlanta, but it wasn't built in such a way that would uh, create gentrification and drive those lower-income citizens out. In fact, Arthur Blank, when building the stadium, insisted that the people from that community would be employed by the partners at the stadium. I mean, that's huge. You want to talk about investing in a local community and improving access to your product. I'd go further. I I agree that those activist communities have have lauded it, but I don't know anyone who hasn't lauded what's going on in Atlanta. You could look across almost all of the leagues and franchises and they see what's happening and they go, that makes a lot of sense. This might be a better model forward, especially in in lieu of of what we're seeing or in light of what we're seeing with decreasing attendances and and some of the issues that we're seeing competing with the at-home experience. I mean, not only that, but I think teams are really fully aware now that the money, that gate revenue is important, but the money is really not a- in attendance anymore. It's That's, a rounding error. Right? Exactly. It's, it's crazy. It's yeah. a rounding error. You know, how, how much How much did the Golden State Warriors make per game at the gate? $3.4 million. We, we talked about that in a previous episode. How much do they make in media revenue per game? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so, and that's the thing is like you say, oh, well, 82 games, $3.4 million per game. That's a little over, you know, $250 million uh, for the year in gate. Isn't there a payroll somewhere about that just for their players? Ooh, I don't know. If there's the salary cap. I don't think that big. I was going to guess. Oh, no, the salary cap is I think at one sixty five. I was going to say one seventy. But yeah, yeah, but the point is, is like you know, it's not that far off the, from the the profits. And yet, the, I should say from the payroll. And yet, the Golden State Warriors are posting profits of how many millions of dollars? Mm-hmm. So gate revenue doesn't matter anymore. Teams are realizing that they can afford to take a bit of a loss at the gate if it inspires more brand loyalty and more media revenue in the long run. Well, and and we can talk about the experience too, right? Like playing in front of a sold-out arena with the loud home crowd is better for the players, it's better for the fans. So we we can talk about maximizing uh, engagement, maximizing revenue, maximizing attendance and and the different things Mm -hmm. and and their spillover effects. I mean, talk about playing a game in front of a half-empty crowd. When the next media res negotiation comes around for your team, media is going to look at that and say... I mean, the product you're putting out there, it's just, it's its not lively. It's boring, right? So you're losing out there too. So there's incentive to pack the stadium, even if that means a little bit lower in stadium revenue. Perception matters. Perception matters. Mm-hmm. I was hoping that you would say perception matters too. Just kind of round it all out. <laughs> perception, <then>. perception matters. <laughs> what, what are your I thoughts? I, you kinda, I mean, I just kind of tying this back to this episode and previous episodes. We talked about transactional friction. And this idea of how do we make it easier for fans to get in the game, buy things uh, at the concession stand, tickets. And we could uh, incorporate tickets into this discussion of tickets increasingly going digital and how that makes things harder for some fans and more tracking, etc. And I'm not sure that this movement to cash-free venues makes that easier for all these fans. Again, we talked at the beginning okay, well, now I have to go to this reverse ATM and do all that. It makes it complicated to just buy a hot dog. Same thing with tickets. I mean, you might say, okay, all digital tickets are great, right? Well, there's a large portion of fans who don't have just a cell phone that they can pull out to scan whatever they need to scan to get in the venue. Well, this is a true story. Like, I prefer paper tickets. Mm -hmm. I don't have to worry about my battery dying. I don't have to worry about dropping my phone. When I go and fly... I will print out my boarding pass. I just mm-hmm. find it easier to have it. Same thing with when I go to a stadium. Like if I get tickets to, say, the D-backs game and they're on my phone, I don't like it. And, and I just don't like it. I don't know why. Right. It's just there's an attachment to I have this tangible piece. Yeah, so, I mean, all of a sudden we have a world where you have only digital tickets that have to be on your phone and you have to have a credit card or something else to pay at the venue. You can't use cash. I mean, there's friction there that makes it less enjoyable for a, a significant portion of fans. 
I think to really round this out, it's important that I, I think we all can agree, I should say, that it's important that sports teams not only focus on the fan experience, but also on fan access and making mm-hmm. their events the most enjoyable and the most accessible they can be, Absolutely. you know, and not alienating a portion of their fan base. Well, one of the biggest things we hear about diversity and inclusion, and, and they typically talk about the players, but we also have to think about our fan bases sure. and being, you know, active in the communities. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's all the time we have for this topic. Our closing thought of the day, Professor Lee wanted to talk about a certain city that is really uh, ramping up in the American sportscape. Uh, you want to talk a little bit yeah, about that? Yeah, so the recent Sports Business Journal had kind of a op-ed editorial that was discussing the prospect of Las, An- or, oh, Las Vegas becoming the number one sports city in the world. Hmm. Um, based on, again, you've got T-Mobile Arena, you've got the Raiders moving there, you've got the infrastructure for hotels, entertainment, you've got tens of millions of visitors every year, plus residents. See, that's kind of interesting because I, I kind of thought with the passage of, of some of these legalization of gambling in the different states that you could see the death of Las Vegas. <laughs> so you have these kind of competing sure. powers of if – and maybe the, the article references it, but if, if gambling is no longer the attraction, why do we go to Vegas? And, and maybe as a sports hub, it becomes more engaging. Well, I mean, if you think about Las Vegas, you have T-Mobile Arena, obviously a great venue, mm-hmm. but you also have the MGM Grand – Right. You have the Orleans Arena, uh, which is a perfectly serviceable arena. I think is it the uh, the WAC Blazer Conference tournament there. Uh, the Orleans Arena. There's another. Right. Uh, the uh, UNLV Arena can be used for other events. There are other venues across Vegas that can be repurposed for sporting events. And they already have the Golden Knights, WNBA Aces, kind of the home ground for UFC and boxing in a lot of ways. You've got NBA Summer League. I mean, they've got they're intertwined with a lot of sports' biggest events. In the not-too-distant future, I think you'll see a Super Bowl there. Right. Um, which is start starting to shift the perception of Las Vegas. I'm excited for that. The Raiders moving there soon. I think it's a matter of time before an NBA team moves into T-Mobile mm-hmm. Arena as an expansion team. Sure. Um, so, a bit of a bittersweet note. We bring this up for uh, kind of a specific reason. Um, so, the Masters of Sports Law and Business program that I am enrolled in at Arizona State is a one-year program. Um and I'm graduating in May, and I'll take this opportunity to announce that I've accepted an internship with the Vegas Golden Knights in the Business Intelligence Department. Uh, so I'm really excited for this new chapter in my life. I'm really excited to you know take part in one of the hottest brands in all of sports, not just all of hockey, but all of sports. Sure. Um, and I'm really excited to take that opportunity. With that in mind... Since I'm moving to Las Vegas, that means that the days of the sports business commute are unfortunately a little numbered. We'll be pushing out episodes for as long as we can, but I'm moving to Las Vegas in mid-May. So we don't have a whole lot of time left. So we'll be announcing more about that kind of sooner as the day gets closer and closer. Um, But uh, I'm not going to say we're on our last legs, (laughs) although it might feel like that a little bit. Uh, But we are going to start winding down. So expect some really cool episodes coming out from us in the next couple of weeks in the next couple of months even potentially if we can build up a suitable backlog. Uh, we really want to go out with a bang and really present some of the best sports business commentary that we can uh, before I make my move to Sin City. So uh, with that in mind, I want to thank you all for listening, uh, all of our five loyal listeners. <laughs> Although you never know, we've been we've been improving our numbers. You it just know? takes one. It I'm just happy takes... to have one listener. Exactly. Cares enough about what we're saying. Christine's <laughs> mom. All right. Hell yeah. <laughs> but no, we we appreciate your we appreciate your uh, your patronage. We appreciate your listenership, and uh, 
with that, and thank congrats you. to Michael. <laughs> thank you. Appreciate it, guys. Couldn't have done it without these two. So. Send, cor- send congrats at Michael Menkes. On Twitter, yeah. Uh, there will be an official announcement coming out soon. I'll be posting that on my official Twitter. It'll probably be a couple weeks before this episode airs, so uh, just ignore everything I just said. <laughs> Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Sports Business Commute here on the program. The Sports Business Commute is hosted by myself, Michael Minkus, Chris Lee, and Daniel Mackdosh. Latter two are professors at the W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State University. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you next week.